Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 9, Behind Barbed Wire, the First World War Internment of Ukrainian Canadians. When Canada found itself at war with the central powers, that is Germany, Austria, and the Ottoman Empire, in August of 1914, suddenly numerous law-abiding residents of our young country were deemed enemy aliens. Thousands of these enemy aliens were interned, the largest group being ethnic Ukrainians who came from the lands of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Though lured to Canada with promises of cheap land and an opportunity for a new start, many of them now found themselves behind barbed wire, imprisoned by the very government that sought to bring them to Canada in the first place. Today's book recommendation is Blood and Salt by Barbara Sapergia, an historical fiction novel that weaves stories of friendship and love throughout the tumultuous period of internment. Okay, so on August 4th, 1914, Great Britain went to war against Germany and the other Central Powers. Great Britain's declaration meant that Canada too was automatically at war. The key members of the Central Powers were Germany, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. It was war with the Austro-Hungarian Empire that would set the stage for the internment of Ukrainians living in Canada. When Canada went to war, the Conservative government under Robert Borden passed what is called the War Measures Act. This act is one of the most controversial pieces of legislation ever to pass in Canadian history and will be dealt with extensively in another episode. Suffice it to say, this act gave the Canadian government unprecedented far-reaching powers to control the country during wartime. With the War Measures Act, the Canadian government was suddenly able to classify a whole demographic within Canada as aliens of an enemy nationality. Roughly 171,000 Ukrainians lived in Canada in 1914. The vast majority of them lived on the prairies. Many of those Ukrainians that lived in Canada had been actively lured to this country by the Canadian government. You see, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, the Canadian government sought to populate the Canadian West with white Christian farmers, displacing the Métis and First Nations that had previously occupied the territory. 
Successive ministers of the interior, most notably a man named Clifford Sifton, actually hired agents to go to areas of eastern and southern Europe with high peasant populations to promote settlement in Canada. Men like Sifton believed that European peasants were uniquely suited for the difficult conditions of farming on the prairies, while at the same time were in such an impoverished state that the promise of good, cheap, and sometimes even free land would be irresistible. Sifton was quoted in Maclean's magazine as saying, These men are workers. They have been bred for generations to work from daylight to dark. They have done nothing else and never expect to do anything else. Now, many of the Ukrainians came from areas in Galicia or Bukovina, where many lived in archaic feudal conditions, whereby the local land-owning noble essentially owned the peasants. This meant they were forced to work several days a month on the noble's land, or could not leave the land without the noble's permission, or could not switch jobs without the noble's permission. Many who did not live in these feudal conditions were deeply in debt anyways to the local landlords, often of the noble or elite class, due to continual rent increases. Thus, for many, the opportunity to go west was an opportunity to escape the heavy burden of the peasant lifestyle. Now, in some cases, the Canadian government even paid a bonus to transatlantic shipping companies who would ensure that their desperate passengers made their way to Canada. The Canadian Pacific Railway was involved in this, giving bonuses to shipping companies who could get Ukrainians to come to Canada. It is clear that the Canadian government actively sought and promoted a life in Canada to many of these impoverished peasant Ukrainian families. So by 1914, you now have 171,000 of them. Most were farmers on the prairies, and many were also working in lumber or mining industries. The vast majority of them were peaceful and law-abiding. Yet, after the 4th of August, 1914, they were all of a sudden a threat to the Canadian war effort. Now, it is interesting to point out that these are not Austrians, nor are they Hungarians. Their nationality is Ukrainian, meaning they speak Ukrainian, observe traditional Ukrainian cultural practices. Many are some form of the Christian Orthodox religion, but their citizenship is defined by the Canadian state as Austrian or Austro-Hungarian. In other words, their citizenship defined them as enemies of Canada, not their actions, nor their nationality, language, religion, or culture. Thus it was that under the War Measures Act, the Canadian government could legally intern these people. Twenty-four camps were established where the enemy alien population could be concentrated and kept under a watchful eye. As an aside, the term concentration camp and the practice of using concentration camps was widely used within the British Commonwealth. It was only after people found out the Nazis were using concentration camps as a tool for genocide that the practice was finally stopped. 8,570 enemy aliens, including women and children, were incarcerated in these camps. Out of these, 5,000 are thought to be Ukrainian. 
These camps also included a wide variety of nationalities, including Poles, Russians, Bulgarians, Italians, Croats, Turks, Jews, and Romanians. Eventually, even German prisoners of war. 80,000 others, again mostly Ukrainians, were forced to register with their local authorities and report regularly. These registered enemy aliens were issued identification papers that they had to produce at any one time on demand. Failure to produce one's identification papers meant imprisonment. Before we continue, I just want to take a quick break and remind you that you can find us on all of your podcast listening devices, as well as on our socials at Facebook, SoundCloud, and at our homepage, CoolCanadianHistory.com. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see that there are links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. We survive solely on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. So we thank you for every dollar. Now on with the show. What is really strange about this internment story? is that internees of German nationality and German-speaking prisoners of war were separated from the other internees and designated part of a quote-unquote first-class category. As crass as it sounds, this meant that they were generally kept in more comfortable accommodations while not being obliged to perform heavy labor. Heavy labor, you ask? Well, many of the internees were sent to isolated locations in places like Spirit Lake, Quebec, Castle Mountain, Alberta, or Otter Creek, British Columbia, where they were required to build their own camp and then do heavy labor on a wide variety of infrastructure projects, from building railways, to clearing forests, to constructing roads into isolated regions. Many of the first roads into the Rocky Mountains, for instance, began as this prison internment labor project. In fact, the largest concentration of these labor camps was in the Rocky Mountains near Banff and Jasper, opening up these soon-to-become mountain resort towns to the country and then eventually to the world. Upon arrest, an internee had their property and valuables seized by the government. The Canadian authorities, however, had a difficult time keeping track of most of the money and property that was seized, and there were, of course, serious problems with theft and quote-unquote lost goods. A 1992 report estimated that the total loss and monetary value was somewhere in the millions. Now, life in the camps was difficult. Not only were the internees living in a prison behind barbed wire watched by armed guards, but they were often denied simple pleasures like access to newspapers or different types of food. Their correspondence with family was censored and limited, and there were also numerous reports of mistreatment by the camp guards. Even the man responsible for overseeing the internment operations, the Boer War veteran General William Otter, spoke to accusations of mistreatment of the prisoners. He said, and I quote, The various complaints made to you by prisoners as to the rough conduct of the guards I fear is not altogether without reason, a fact much to be regretted and, I am sorry to say, by no means an uncommon occurrence at other stations, end quote. Now within these difficult conditions, 107 internees would lose their life. 
Most passed away due to natural circumstances, but there were certainly more tragic cases of death. A number of Ukrainian internees committed suicide. Several Ukrainian Canadians were even killed attempting to escape. The internees were not passively accepting their new conditions by any means. Many fought back. The 1,200 prisoners at Kapuskasing internment camp in northern Ontario rioted in 1916 and actually took over the prison for a brief time until negotiations returned camp control back to the 300 guards. There were numerous other examples of strikes, sit-ins, and even refusals to eat by various Ukrainian internees. In July of 1916, a prominent group of Ukrainian Canadians wrote to the Canadian government stating, Ukrainians in Canada are treated as enemy Austrians. They are persecuted by thousands, they are interned by thousands, they are dismissed from their employment, and their applications for work are not entertained. And why? For only one reason, that they were so unhappy as to be born into the Austrian bondage. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Now, the government's response to this was frankly further repressive measures. In 1917, the government passed the Wartime Elections Act. Now, while this act gave the vote to all wives, daughters, and mothers of serving soldiers, the first time in Canadian history that women would be allowed to vote federally, it also disenfranchised most Ukrainian Canadians. It took their vote away. As the war years dragged on, Canada began to experience a shortage of labor, and this began to change the government's relationship with their internees. Hundreds of internees were thus released on parole to work for federal or provincial governments, private companies, and the soon-to-be-nationalized Canadian Railway Network. Interestingly, their pay was fixed at the same as a Canadian soldier, which was in fact substantially lower than that of a private citizen worker. Thus, internees once again proved to be a cheap source of labor. What is interesting as well is that Ukrainian Canadians even joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force in large numbers. They went overseas to serve. How did they do this, you ask? Well, many frankly lied. They lied about their place of origin, and they even changed their surnames to more acceptable anglicized ones in order to get into service. One Ukrainian Canadian, for instance, Philip Conowal, even won the Victoria Cross at the Battle of Hill 70. As an aside, you can learn more about the Battle of Hill 70 in a special episode released by Cool Canadian History in August of 2017. Now, Conowal is pretty fascinating because, of course, he was able to keep his surname because he was born in Russia, an Entente power, technically an ally of Canada, while any other soldiers discovered to have been born in Austria were immediately discharged and oftentimes arrested and interned. It is fascinating to think that 
while all these people are being thrown into concentration camps, many of them are trying to actually serve the very country that is arresting their kinsmen and brethren. Sadly, Ukrainians from the Austro-Hungarian Empire would be targets of suspicion by the Canadian government and the Royal Northwest Mounted Police even after the war ended. Though most internees were released once the war completed in November 1918, a few were still forced to remain in the camps until as late as February 1920. In June of 1920, the internment operations were officially shut down. This was truly a dark chapter in the Canadian war effort, and a challenge to the commonly held belief that Canada has always been a place of acceptance and multiculturalism. Even more tragically, the Ukrainian internment operations would not be the last time this country targeted a group of people during wartime. In fact, the internment of the Ukrainians provided the blueprint for another similarly dark episode during the Second World War, this time targeting Japanese Canadians. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on SoundCloud, and you can find us at our website, www.coolcanadianhistory.com, and of course you can find me on Twitter, at DocBoris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. I want to thank you for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Take care.